2: This is like a Boy Who Cried Wolf situation. We can't keep playing politics with this issue and then expecting to be trusted when the going gets really tough. We've got to have a neutral, calm, fact-based, trusting conversation with Australians, and that's going to be, you know, the most important tool and asset that we have in confronting the challenges ahead. You're listening to the National Security Podcast, the show that brings you expert analysis, insights and opinion on the national security challenges facing Australia and the Indo Pacific. Produced by the ANU National Security College.
0: Welcome to the National Security Podcasts. I'm Rory Medcalf, Head of the National Security College here at the Australian National University. Today's podcast is being recorded on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people, and I pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. Today, we've got a very special episode. I'm joined by the Honourable Claire O'Neill MP, the Federal Member for Hotham and the Minister for Home Affairs and Minister for Cyber Security. And of course, uh, Minister O'Neill spoke very recently at the National Security College on her portfolio, but very specifically the issue of uh, foreign interference. So it's a particular pleasure to be recording this, this longer conversation with you. Uh, Welcome to the podcast, Minister.
2: Rory, thanks so much for having me, and I'm a a long-time listener of your podcast and a big fan of the work you're doing at the National Security College, so it's great to be talking to you. Well,
0: that's that's a wonderful endorsement up front, and I think that's uh, that's really reassuring for my team because Really, the mission of this podcast is is part of the wider mission of the college, which was to to expand and deepen the, the Australian conversation and the international conversation on national security. And of course, that goes directly uh, to the work you do now mm. as, as Minister for Home Affairs uh, and, and Cyber Security. So, thank you, thank you very much. Look, what I'd like to do in this conversation is get into some of the um, the really fundamental issues of security uh, that you deal with now day to day, but also with a view to the long term mm-hmm. uh, as minister. But I actually want to begin on a slightly more personal note. I think in this podcast, uh, w- when we have guests who now have senior leadership roles in national security, we often under- want to understand them, mm, I guess, sure. and their thinking. Yeah. And I guess looking at your career, um, in politics, but also before politics, whether it was in academia, uh, in study or whether it was in, uh, the work you were doing, uh, particularly with the private sector over, over the years, uh, we're really interested in understanding what got you interested both in politics and in, security, because national security seems to be a kind of theme throughout a lot of your thinking. Yeah, so absolutely. A little bit about about yourself, please. Okay,
2: my life story. Sure, let's go. <laughs> uh, so, I, I think my interest in politics came from my family home, like most people. My parents weren't political in the sense that they were not members of political parties, but it was in, an intensely political household. My parents were both book publishers, and they published really relentlessly books about Australia, especially my dad. Um, he published more than a 1,000 titles in his life and I think we worked out some vast majority of them actually had the word Australia in the title. He published about um, Australian sport, nature, about the outback, travel, history, politics, lots of really famous political biographies that were published sort of around the 60s, 70s, 80s. And so the kind of running conversation throughout my childhood was really about our country and what Australia was and what it could be and what its role was in the world. Um so I think when I was a a teenager like most young people, I well not maybe not most young people, but certainly <laughs> in the world I operate in, I developed a sort of white hot rage about the state of the world and um, the Labor Party answered a lot of questions for me about what was wrong. I've never felt the Labor Party's is perfect um, in every single way, but I always have deeply believed that part of my purpose is to fight inequality in the world and that's kind of the core purpose of the Labor Party. So I um, I have a really strong belief coming into politics that it was really important for me to have done lots of things before I kind of embarked on a political career um, and so for that reason, um, and just partly because that's how I like to live, I, I have done a lot of different things. I've lived overseas. I've lived in different parts of Australia. I've spent quite a lot of time in Aboriginal communities. Um, I've worked on the New York Stock Exchange. I have um, studied I studied at Harvard for two years and did a lot of study here in Australia too. And I, I did spend a bit of time working in business. So I spent um, just under four years working at um, McKinsey. And through that got a kind of inside view of pretty much every major economic sector in Australia, and I just learned a staggering amount about um, how our economy functions. Like I, I knew a lot about the economy. I didn't understand anything about business, and I remember the first day I worked at McKinsey going behind the the front desk for the first time, just looking around and seeing all these people and thinking, I don't know what these people do. And then, you know, having a four year journey of kind of really understanding how business works and how it impacts on on our country. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of how I've ended up where I am. And um national security, as you say, has been a, a really big theme. When I think about my purpose now in politics, I think about my kids and the Australia that they will enjoy as adults. And the two things that I'm really I'm really confident we'll define that country uh, how we respond to climate change and how we deal with our changing geopolitical circumstances and today I get to work really squarely in that latter space and it's um you know it's a huge privilege to be able to do so
0: Look thank you for that for that answer and for I guess that the personal uh revelations there about about what's shaped your thinking and I think it is important for those of us who work in the national security space to to look at security in that much broader Context when I mean, mm. you talk about uh, the nation's future, you talk about equality. Uh, I think the even the connection between security and justice is often one that mm, um, doesn't sure. always come first to mind when we when we think about security. So, so thanks for um, if you like you know widening the aperture from from the start of, of the conversation. Um, and we'll come back a little bit later on, particularly to the speech you gave at the National Press Club last year, yeah. where you talked about uh, national security. In a very long-term view or a relatively long-term view, uh, because I think that's that that will inform I think a few of these thoughts. I do want to get back to uh Australia now and back mm-hmm. to that sense of community, because of course both the community that you represent in your electorate and, and the Australia you've got to know through all that broad experience is um is a very complex place. It's very mm. layered, it's obviously very multicultural. And one of the messages that we've heard in a number of your speeches lately, including your speech recently at the National Security College, is about engaging the community in national security. So, I'd love to hear a little more of your thinking about the link between security broadly defined and the Australian community. Mm -hmm.
2: Well, it's a really interesting question. And I would say if there's one thing that um, probably really differentiates the national security challenges that we've faced in the past and those we face in the future it's probably around how integral Australians themselves will be in resolving the problems of the future um, when I think about my portfolio, um, I'm you know have this really critical role in protecting the domestic security of Australians and um, that challenge now is going to forever involve an integral, kind of discussion and conversation and collaboration between our leaders and and, and Australian citizens. Um, and I think foreign interference is probably the best example of that. So um, because of um, technology, really, it's become very easy for foreign governments to reach into our country and try to shape our politics in ways that I fundamentally believe are illegitimate and wrong. We can't tackle that. Government alone, we actually have to equip the community with the knowledge and the resources to see this problem occurring in their orbit and and respond to it. Um, So, we can't have a conversation in Canberra here about national security and not ensure that it filters through into the households of people who will be our most important partners in having a safe Australia in 2030, 2040, 2050. So, um, one thing I would say is the most important thing about this discussion is not to politicise it.
1: Yeah.
2: And the reason that I say that is because Australians are really smart and they know when politicians are politicising matters and they stop listening and we can't afford to have that happen. So- I'm very um, committed to making sure that we have as bipartisan a conversation as we had, though that's not always possible, but um, most importantly, a kind of non-politicised conversation and that means we've got to tell the truth and we've got to be honest with Australians about the type of challenges that we confront and what they look like and just really work to build that trust with the community back up again, because we're going to need it in the years to come.
0: And that includes that, that full spectrum of security issues, whether it's foreign interference, mm-hmm. climate change, geopolitics, technology, I mean, you, you'd apply that across the board.
2: Absolutely. So, I mean, I mentioned foreign interference there, but cyber security is another one of my responsibilities, and I'd just put that right there in this space as well. Um, I, one of my big pushes is transparency and openness. One of the things I've been really surprised by since coming into my role is I consume vast amounts of intelligence, as you can imagine, in my position now. And you can't read these reports and think um, anything other than the Australian people have to know more about this, mm. that they don't know enough about the the context and the ways in which people are trying to interfere with our, our politics and our security. And so we've tried to open up the doors a little bit and I will really be pushing to con- continue to do that. Just a couple of examples, you know, we called out in the um, Medibank attack last year the Russian hackers that were responsible for that attack. Um, This week I talked openly about Iran as a driver of um, illegitimate foreign interference in Australia. I really want to keep doing that. It's important that we provide accountability and show people what's going on, but most importantly that we just explain to Australians that there are big security issues in their Mm. orbit and I really want them to be aware of it so they can respond.
0: Thanks, and I think, uh, and the reason I say thanks is because that's a it's a theme that's close to the heart of the work of the National Security College. We're very interested in looking at the changing nature of intelligence and the the way in which, for example, open source intelligence now actually can help government really communicate. Yeah. Um, you know, break that gap, as, yep. you, as you say, between what you see in the confidential world and what what the public yep. understands. Well, we
2: have a really shared passion there in that case, Rory. Um, and something that is really fascinating about this conversation is that it requires a huge cultural shift within our intelligence agencies, who are by their very nature covert. Um, you know, trying to keep secrets at all times. We need them to do something different, and that is really open up. And Mike Burgess, the DG of um, security in Australia, has really led that conversation here. I think he's the first DG of security internationally to have his own Twitter profile, (laughs) which probably sounds a bit twee, but it's actually not at all. We need to bring these problems out of the shadows and into the light. That's the only way we're going to be able to address them.
0: And, and I note that we're recording this, I think, before the release of his annual threat assessment, but by the time this recording is released, uh, that may well be out. Yep. So we'll watch with interest. Let's, let's move back to the private sector, if I may, because I think your, um, your insight there as to what it's like, if you like, behind the, um, behind the shop mm-hmm. front of whether it's, uh, big consulting firms or whether it's the, um, the boardrooms of Australia, uh, is incredibly important. I've, Often seen that that disconnect between the national security conversation we have in Canberra, and not only the priorities and imperatives of our commercial sector, but but, but the way they think about um, the national interest. What's the best way, in your view, to engage the private sector on national security issues, and and, and how well are we doing?
2: Yeah. So, firstly, I just want to reiterate the point about trust. I think if um, and if I can just make one brief comment about. Um, some of the things I felt really troubled about under the previous government's approach to these issues. it was um it was the reflex willingness to politicize national security issues and particularly to um talk about China in a way that I felt was highly politicized. And then when you sit down in a boardroom and try to have a real discussion with people, the the sense of um, coherence and, and trust between the parties just isn't there, and that's what I'm trying to sort of correct. We need to go back to a conversation which is really fact based and in, in the national interest, not in the political interests of me or any other politician in this country. Information is key, um, and you know we sort of tear out of here a little bit about national security challenges. Whenever I have had a conversation as Home Affairs Minister with an individual or organisation or group of Australians that alerts them to a national security risk, they they care immediately. They immediately want to address the problem. But I think the question for government is, are we giving them the information and the tools that they need to do so? If I can just make one other point, I think, you know, it would be so wonderful if everything between business and government could be solved through good Open conversation. It's not always the case. Uh, it's just not always the case. The imperatives just um, just don't always line up. Um, so you know, good regulation is really important. And I just come again back to cybersecurity. So um, one thing I would um, say that the previous government did that was really good for our national security was the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act, which um, for those who are um, not familiar with this is the way in which we are protecting critical infrastructure and assets around Australia. So if I can just um, explain a little bit to your listeners because I think it's really interesting for, for people who are interested in national security, one of the big shifts in thinking that we've had to go through over the last probably decade is the recognition that um, particular industries or assets in Australia, whether they be privately or publicly owned, are integral to our national security interests and therefore government has a right um, to engage with owners of those pieces of infrastructure to protect them because that helps protect our country. So that sounds probably a bit like gobbledygook, but I'm talking here about things like the electricity grid, like major hospitals in our cities, um, where, you know, even um, things like, um, you know, su- um, supply chains and logistics, where if these things fail, even though they're in private ownership, there are huge national security yeah. implications. We can't feed the population, we can't give them medical care, we can't give them utilities. Um, So the security of critical infrastructure is a way that government has regulated for minimum standards across a range of different threats and one of the most important of those is cyber. So under the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act, I now set minimum cyber standards for um, businesses in critical industries across Australia. Huge thing. I mean it's a huge intervention of government into the world of commerce, very necessary, because we were just not getting there through voluntary codes and good conversation. So I think we need to accept that. Um, despite the great willingness of businesses and industry and community to help us with these things, sometimes the law is going to be necessary.
0: I'm glad you've uh, mentioned that because uh, later we'll talk a little bit bit about national resilience in that comprehensive sense and also I guess although you make the point about the politicisation of national security over the years, particularly on the China issue. Um, you also acknowledge that some of the settings, the policy settings that have been in place over the last few years, including from previous governments, are are on the right track. I mean, mm-hmm. it's a case that uh, it looks to me as if your government is. I guess, refining and strengthening some of those settings rather than introducing them. What's what's your sense?
2: Um, I think it's a little bit of column A, a little bit of column B. Uh, um, certainly, the, I mean, I, I would never, you know, come into office saying that everything that happened in the last 10 years was a, a complete disaster. Of course, some really important and good things happened. And and indeed, the, the former government um, – was in power during a big shift in our geopolitical circumstances. Think about the difference in the national security conversation between when they were elected in 2013 and where we are now in 2023. You couldn't have imagined that things could change so quickly in a decade, and I think there were some important things that were done, but I really- Want people to understand politicisation of these issues is dangerous. It reduces the government's ability to help protect Australians. And if I can pick one thing that will change under the new government in Australia, it is that we're here for the national interest and these things are too important to be toyed with. We can't do anything that reduces government's power to solve these problems with the population.
0: I think that point's well taken and I, or well made and well taken, and I think. Across the spectrum, for example, the work the college uh, is now seeking to do with our program of briefings for parliamentarians across the political spectrum, I hope that 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 can be reinforced. Mm. But let's turn to the future and I think uh, your speech in December taking a long view for home affairs is one mark- marker, but of course you're not new to thinking about the future long term. And there's a book uh that you co-authored with um with Tim Watts, I think, mm-hmm. in 2015, uh, called Two Futures, Australia at a critical, critical moment. And that book is something that, in fact, full confession, we we set it as a reading for our students back then when it was oh, when it was so released. Nice but of course, but of course <laughs> the world great. changes. Yeah. And I think any of us who who seek to if not be futurists, then at least recognise the importance of structured thinking about the future. The first thing we acknowledge is that um, you can't predict
2: exactly. yep. the
0: future. You can, you know, analyse, project, look at plausible futures. Your book looked to 2040 and looked at the choices Australia had to make, in your view, um, in order to achieve that that sustainable, just, secure future that you're talking about. A lot's changed since mm. 2015, mm. as you said, since your book was published. Um Any confessions there on what changes you didn't anticipate um, or what changes perhaps, uh, you know, unfortunately uh, you got right?
2: Uh, Yeah. The way that you've talked about the approach to the future is very much how Tim and I thought about writing this book, and that is that, you know, any attempt to predict the future is is basically crazy and it can't be done. And um, there's, you know, every example you look at where people have just made mad predictions, very smart people that that haven't come to fruition, what we tried to do instead was think about the six things we thought would um, drive the quality of life of Australians in 2040 and just think generally about those subjects. Um, and I would say that um, it's it's held up very well, um, really because of the approach, not because Tim and I are, are so clever. Um, but if you think about, you know, obviously climate inequality, um, you know, the way that we've gone through this period of really difficult sort of economic stagnation, um, these things are, have all been, I think, proved accurate. The the two things I would just draw out, um, as I said before, no one I don't think could have predicted how different the geopolitical circumstances are for us and even how we define the national risks um, national security risks facing the country. If you think back to when we wrote that book in 2014, you know one of the big conversations was about substate actors as the new kind of drivers of of national security. Well, we're back into you know big power diplomacy in a way that <laughs> you know could yeah. never have been anticipated really um and when when i think about the national security conversation i observed in the parliament through that period i mean we were going through really difficult counter-terrorism issues um we had syria on the go we had a lot of foreign fighters leaving australia and returning under various different circumstances it was just a very different time and the subtext of all of this was a benign china and of course that's changed so quickly in that 10 years um you know things have just really dramatically shifted on that front. So I would say the national security, um, I mean, nothing in it is wrong, I would say, but it's just, it looks a little bit different and I think more dangerous than we had anticipated it would be. The other one I'd just point to is um, Tim and I have a great passion for Australian democracy and um, a deep concern about the way in which Australians are gradually losing trust in their democracy. That For me is one of the most important national security challenges that we face. There are deliberate attempts around the world to degrade the quality of democracy in democratic countries by authoritarian regimes who are trying to reduce our degrees of freedom to respond to global events, trying to make us feel that democracies doesn't work, that it's fundamentally not the right system of government, that um, democracies can't be trusted to engage in conflict, those sorts of things. These are very, very dangerous ideas and so Um, something I'm very passionate about in my role is actually trying to fight back against this. This is, you know, the quality of of democracy around the world is a a much admired problem. Everyone can speak with great detail about the contours and shapes of it, but no one, I don't think, is doing much about it. And I would like Australia to lead the way on that. So that's a project that we're starting in home affairs this year.
0: So if you like, what, what, what you're thinking and writing, at uh, that stage of your career and the, the challenges you're grappling with, uh, in a leadership role now, you, you can see those, those, those continuities. And I think there's a, um, there's a message there too, which really I, chair for any um, analyst, whether they're in government or the intelligence community or the private sector, if, if you've got that um, that judgment about some major change or discontinuity coming in the strategic landscape, don't be shy mm. <laughs> in sharing it. Because I think even on the China issue there, you know there were voices, as I can mm-hmm. tell, who were looking at, the, at these plausible futures, but they weren't necessarily getting traction, mm-hmm. um, including within government. And I think it could well be now that there are voices thinking about the changes 10 mm-hmm. years, 15 years from now, uh, who at this stage may, you know, may struggle against groups. Yeah. So I'd, I'd also take your remarks, Minister, as a kind of, if I can interpret it that way, as an admonition to say that, that we should never, um, stick with the group think at the mm-hmm. moment. We should always be looking at the plausible mm-hmm. breaks. Absolutely, future, Rory.
2: Aren't. I couldn't agree more. Um, and, you know, I guess one of the messages here is it's really important for politicians to be reading and speaking to a wide range of people. And I actually do go to quite a lot of efforts to find um, people who are well-informed on subjects but do have a different view than me to just really more to test my own thinking and have the argument and see, you know, what comes out of it. Rory, can I just come back to... um what we've just talked about there, the the changing shape of the national uh, security conversation over a decade, because this is very important and pivotal to the way in which I'm embracing the home affairs portfolio. So my department was created by Peter Dutton only five years ago, and it was created very much in the sort of context of the things that Peter Dutton stands for in politics. And I say that without any critique, it's just who he is as a person. And so, the the discussion about home affairs at the time was very much around um, boats and managing the borders, around um, crime types that he's particularly interested in, around um, drug trafficking, um, these sorts of matters. Very important things for the country and very important national security risks we face. What I would say is that I think it's a much too narrow lens of domestic security for us. And the big change that I'm trying to um, push in home affairs is all of these big geopolitical challenges that we face, the most dangerous ones that we've faced that Australia's faced since the Second World War. That's that's this is a big national security challenge for the country now. This has huge domestic security implications that home affairs wasn't designed to be addressing. And one of the things that my um secretary um Mike Pizzullo, and I are working on is how do we restructure the work of this department? To tackle the the real challenges here, and that is around foreign interference, around democracy, national resilience, and cyber security, um, to name a small handful. The department will still focus on all of the other things that it was doing before because those are really important. But it's really saying, um, you know, let's let's think about what domestic security means for us in this very very difficult period that we're about to enter as a country. And my view is that Home Affairs does need to change quite a bit its work to address those concerns.
0: And that goes to a theme I was actually hoping to get to at the end of the conversation, but let's go to it now, which is what is the future for, uh, the Department of Home Affairs yeah. and the portfolio? Because obviously some changes have already been apparent since the change of government. Obviously, uh, the, uh, Australian Federal Police essentially mm-hmm. going back, uh, uh un- un- under the, um, the Attorney General. Um, and I'm not talking only about machinery of government changes mm-hmm. here, but also, as you say, changes in, in culture or changes in, in focus. Is there any more uh, fidelity you can give to that um, th- th- that vision for how the department and the portfolio will evolve in meeting these, um, these challenges?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think I've given you a little bit of a big picture of it there, but just to be more specific, so one of the changes that the government made was to create a cabinet minister with responsibility for cybersecurity for the first time in Australian history, and they gave that position to me also. And I think that's in recognition of the fact that cyber is at the heart of all of the national security challenges that we face. Every single one of them has a cyber dimension to it. And that problem wasn't being managed particularly well before. I would say we're probably 10 years behind where we need to be on cyber security as a country and we've got to push really fast to get ourselves in order. Um And so, We are um, doing significantly more in-home affairs on cybersecurity and trying to bring some coordination and spine to the work that's happening around the Australian government on that matter. I talked a little bit about foreign interference. This is a huge feature of our work now because this is relentless, egregious, happening in every community every day. And the- Um, size of the public discussion and the government response isn't anywhere near the size of the problem itself. So we're going to need to really step up our efforts there. And there's a few things I can talk about that the government's already doing there. Um, The other things that are important and new work for the department are around national resilience. So this um, this is a project that says We actually know a lot about the national security context that we're facing into. I haven't seen the Australian government have a serious crack at articulating the domestic implications of what those national security risks are. So, um, that's a, a project that we're undertaking at the moment. I think it's going to end up with some really important decisions. And then finally, I mentioned the work earlier on democracy. We are not going to be able to manage the national security risks that we face over the coming three decades, say, without making sure that we've got a functioning, working democracy. And in many instances, that project is about um, trying to highlight that we actually do have a very functional Mm. democracy. In fact, um, when I travel around the world and talk to Home Affairs Ministers in other countries, they are greatly envious of having a parliament that can actually work together and pass laws when it's in the national interest. And we certainly don't see that in every country in the world. Uh, But we do need to do a lot more to rebuild trust with the Australian electorate. And that's something that I see as uh, part of the work of my department. Australia needs security professionals more than ever. Join the next generation studying at the ANU National Security College. Our programs uniquely fuse academic knowledge with practitioner experience and fit around your lifestyle with study offered online and on campus. Follow the link in the show notes for more
0: information about programs and scholarships. The ANU National Security College. Engaging minds for a secure Australia. These these ambitions and these themes, uh, some of these were uh, illuminated in your speech at the end of last year at the Press Club um, on the long view. And you spoke then actually about the um, Strengthening Democracy Task Force and the National Resilience Task Force, two initiatives that go precisely to what you said. We've not heard a lot about those mm. since then. I know only a few months have passed and, and it's been uh, the Australian summer and all of that. Mm-hmm. But I think- there is an appetite to know more mm-hmm. about those two task forces. So what's, what's the plan?
2: Uh, well, they're, <clears throat> they're brand new pieces of work in the department. So the plan at the moment is to um, set them up properly and resource them and then lay out a, a plan of work for the year to come. Um, and they're doing two very difficult and amorphous pieces of work for the Australian government. So it is going to take a little bit of time. Ultimately, the goal of these um, two new divisions effectively within Home Affairs are to provide the nation with a clear picture of the domestic security implications of our geopolitical context. What that means in plain English. Lots of things are changing in the world. We've got pretty good information about what the big shifts are going to be over the coming decade at least. What will that mean for Australia? What risks will that pose for the country and how can we plan for them and address them now? And really it comes back to this Discussion we were having before Rory about the use of intelligence. Mm. We've got all this information, but the Australian government hasn't sat down and said, what is this going to mean for our citizens and how are we going to protect them when it happens? And that's, um, that's the work of the national resilience piece. Then on democracy, um, this is a hugely difficult project because as I say, this is a problem in every democratic country in the world. And I don't think anyone's found the answer. I believe Australia can lead this conversation because we've been doing that for 120 years. We actually, we're the sixth oldest democracy in the world. We are, you know, historically a huge innovator in democratic reform, compulsory voting, early female franchise, secret ballots, all of these things, you know, many of them were invented in Australia or Australia was the first country, uh, one of the first countries to implement them. Um, We've kind of stopped innovating on that front and I think there's space for us to be a world leader again on this and so the work of the department is trying to understand a bit more about why democracy is in decline in Australia and then quickly go to concrete actions that um, we can undertake to fight back because it should jolt all of us that we all know democracy is pivotal and important. We all know democracy is in pretty steep decline and yet no one's really doing anything about it and we've we've really got to change that.
0: Am I right in thinking this, this won't only be work within the department as well. This will be about engaging uh, voices externally, Absolutely. building a kind of League of Champions nationally on, on mm. democracy and resilience. Mm.
2: That's exactly right. Yep. We're not going to solve democracy in the Home Affairs Department, Roy. <laughs> uh, much as, much as, much as <laughs> I It's Got to be a collaboration on that one, I think. Much as I respect think, yeah.
0: uh, Australia's uh, public, uh, public servants. Uh, but I think that's 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 sort of a key message to understand because Absolutely. also one uh, challenge for us at the college is, is – expanding our engagement with states and territories, mm-hmm. for example, mm-hmm. uh, where so much democracy <laughs> happens. Uh, look, let's um, now go back to the theme of, um, if you like, preparing for the future. And mm-hmm. I think both in your speech at the Press Club and, of course, a deeper theme of your uh, your earlier work and and I think peppered throughout our conversation just now is that idea of, preparing the nation for a difficult future. I mean, obviously, great um, potential to to achieve the, the Australia you want to see, but a lot of that is about getting through shocks and challenges mm-hmm. that are not of our making. Uh, my sense is that shocks lie ahead for Australia. We don't know exactly what or when, but if you look at geopolitics, if you look whether it's at uh, the impact of, of China as an assertive power or, or, or geopolitics more broadly, uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine and that aggression, um, the pervasive uh, threats from climate change, pandemic, you know we've had this, this terrible shock in recent years. there's such uh, a wide horizon of risk there and ha- how the how and when these shocks occur and how they intersect and cascade. Uh, means, uh, you know, with all that complex uncertainty, that we have to be prepared. So, what, in your view, more needs to be done by government and by the broader uh, nation, whether it's states and territories mm-hmm. or business or civil society, to prepare for strategic shocks mm-hmm. in the future?
2: Yeah. So, um, what a great question. Uh, and very much, I think um the themes that you've picked up there, I just completely agree with. So, if you're taking anything from this conversation, it's about having good information about the future, sharing it with the people who need to know it, preparing for risks and shocks, and being able to recover quickly afterwards and this is a sort of spectrum of of you know a cycle that we're going to have to continue to go through, and shocks is um is a good way to sort of catch it all because. When I think about the national security risk facing Australia, I've talked a lot about the geopolitical context today, but don't forget about climate change. This is a huge um, weakness in our system that we need to plan for and understand and respond to. Um, So, something that um, probably hasn't got a lot of play in the national security world is the changes that have been made within home affairs around emergency management. Mm -hmm. We um, have consolidated the emergency management tasks across government into home affairs and um, the purpose for doing that is because I think there's a recognition that there's going to continue to be disasters of various kinds, whether, you know, climate-induced or man-made, and part of national resilience is being able to get up off the mat really quickly after something goes wrong. So, we've um, we've set that up and I think it's working really well to have all these engagements in one place. Cyber is one where I'm doing a lot of work and thinking at the moment. I dealt with the Medibank and Optus incidents last year. Those were, um, you know, principally commercial issues but obviously had wide-ranging impacts for Australians themselves. It was uh, um, the beginning of our cyber issues as Australians, not the end of them, and one of the things I really observed was that the Australian government was not set up for a wide-scale cyber attack that was going to impact millions of citizens and we know that that's going to keep going. I hope not frequently and I hope that we're better prepared next time, but we're not going to reduce our cyber risk to zero. That's not possible. So thinking about um, how we manage across government and governments, the clean-up of cyber incidents is something that we're doing a lot of work and thinking on at the moment. So um, that shares a little bit of work, but I think the general themes that you've picked up on there around um, resilience and um, recovery are really important.
0: Can I just extend that um that thought about emergency management into, I guess, broader crisis management. Mm -hmm. So one uh, question that that a number of us ask in the debate these days in Australia is how prepared would we be for strategic shocks that are geopolitical in the region? So whether it's uh, not necessarily war but it could be military confrontation or uh, deeply coercive confrontation in the region. I mean there are many scenarios, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Taiwan, East China Sea, South China Sea. Mm -hmm. There's a long list of things that could happen um and of course this would whether australia was involved directly or not these things would have um uh, presumably a very deep and immediate impact on the economy on society on on on, on mm-hmm. national resilience um how do you see the the mission for for home affairs in that in that mm, regard
2: yeah well i see it as central and this is um this is this is pivotal to the way in which we're trying to reshape the department because when the crisis comes home affairs is going to play a key role in the domestic implications. We've got, you know, the Defence Department and Richard Miles doing a brilliant job helping reshape our defence force to cope with the sort of risks that you're talking about. We've got Penny Wong out there on the global stage trying to prevent these things from happening. My job is thinking about the domestic implications for Australians should these things happen. And, um, one of the I think surprises that I had coming into this portfolio was that 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 was not already part of the work of home affairs because for me that's just so logical. Um, we're about domestic security and these are domestic security risks. So the national resilience work that we just touched on before that's the that's the point of this piece of work in the department. It's thinking about what those futures look like, what the domestic security implications would be for Australians, and how we're going to prepare for those um, events. And clean up the consequences if and when they occur.
0: So we could expect more work in this space, and and some pretty frank conversations with with, with industry mm-hmm. uh, and and society as, as as time passes.
2: Yep, exactly. And Rory, just you know, tapping back into one of the themes that we've covered this morning, um, we know a lot about the, what this future looks like. Maybe not the exact specifics, but the general shape of the challenges to come. We haven't been using that information as well as I would like to drive preparedness in the Australian government for those events and that's something we're trying to change.
0: Um, look, look, thank you. Thank you, Minister. I think that's um, that, that's a really important part of the national conversation. But before we wrap up, I want to touch again briefly on the speech you gave recently at the National Security College on mm-hmm. Foreign Interference. We're, we're recording this conversation uh, mid, mid-February and that speech was, uh, I guess, identifying a new way of engaging with the foreign interference threat, which looked much more community-focused as far as I could tell. Um, and you talked, I think you used an example or a number of examples of Iranian mm. interference uh, in Australia uh, and how that was being met and resisted by um, by government. But you also spoke about, I guess, what we might expect uh, from communities, uh, how to engage diaspora communities, uh, it would be useful just to hear uh, any, any further thought on on that.
2: Mm, for sure. Foreign interference is one of the most substantial national security risks that we face. It is relentless and it's everywhere in the Australian community and the Australian government needs to work much more closely with Australian communities to tackle it because government alone isn't going to be able to solve this problem. It's got to be a really integrated partnership between government and diaspora communities in particular um we talked a little bit about how we um how we think about diaspora communities in this context and it's really important for diaspora communities around the country to see that we want to help and protect them they are victims of 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 what is an illegitimate attempt by foreign governments to try to control the politics in their communities control their behavior um and intimidate them including doing things like watching them um you know following them um, you know, researching them, getting all sorts of information about them, harassing members of family back home, even, you know, violence and putting people in jail, all these sorts of things. is real. It's it's everywhere. Um, so we're not going to be able to sort that out without those communities believing that the Australian government is there to help them and protect them because the Australian promise is that you live a free and fair life in this country and they're not getting that if foreign interference is allowed to flourish. So um, uh, we've uh, – uh, for the first time, I've I've asked um, my agency's ADO on home affairs to um, develop a proper process of trying to educate people who might be targets of foreign interference about this problem. And as I said before, when I talk to Australians about this issue, they're very exercised about it. But they say to me, "We don't really know what this looks like. We don't know how to tackle it. We don't know what to do if we see it." And that's a, that's a role government's got to, that's a void government's got to fill. So part of the work of these agencies, which are typically not necessarily engaging with community every day, is to kind of open the doors a bit and really, um, really go out there and talk to people about how we can help try and protect them. And it's going to be critical to get that system working because when we look outside Australia and everything that's happening in the world, we know that that problem in particular is going to get a lot worse as the decades progress.
0: And I take it that this applies to uh, diaspora communities from 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 all backgrounds. Mm. I mean, in a sense, the you know the, the China challenge has been front of mind mm-hmm. for many of us when we think about foreign interference mm-hmm. in this country. And as you said previously, it's still there; it's mm. very much still mm-hmm. there. Absolutely. But if any, I guess my sense is, if, if any community is excluded from that assurance and protection mm. by the Australian government, they're essentially being treated as second class mm-hmm. Australians. So, so we take it you're you're talking many many backgrounds here.
2: Yeah. um, I mean, I think one of the flaws in the previous conversation was that um, the sense was this was only coming from one country. And that's just absolutely incorrect and not true at all. And I think, you know, that impression was given probably for for pretty political reasons. Again, this is like a Boy Who Cried Wolf situation. We can't keep playing politics with this issue and then expecting to be trusted when the going gets really tough. We've got to have a neutral, calm, fact-based, trusting conversation with Australians and that's going to be, you know, the most important tool and asset that we have in confronting the challenges ahead.
0: Look, my final question uh, is about another threat which we haven't talked so much about today, but I know is is day-to-day vital work for uh, your portfolio, which of course is countering terrorism. Yep. And violent extremism, politically motivated violence. We've had a particularly horrific incident in uh, Queensland recently, which has now been defined by the Queensland Police as religiously motivated terrorism: uh, the killings of uh, two police officers and a, and, and a, a, a civilian. Um, what, in your view, is the place of um, countering terrorism and violent extremism in the mission of uh, of your portfolio and your your government? And um, how are you looking at defining the breadth of that challenge? Uh, because, of course, um, the kind of violent extremism uh, focused on uh, Islamism uh, mm-hmm. in previous years hasn't gone away, but mm-hmm. there seems to be now a much broader mm-hmm. threat.
2: Yeah. Great question. Um terrorism's always going to be absolutely central to the work of the Home Affairs Department. And um, the reason for that is a lot of the problems that we talked about today are deeply challenging for the country. They're not an imminent threat to the life of Australians. And, of course, threats to life are always the first priority of my department and of the Australian government. The incident in Queensland is um, a really watershed moment for CT in this country. It, it demonstrated a lot of ways in which um, the terrorism threat has reshaped. So um, obviously you mentioned, um, you know, that there's been a big focus in this discussion quite rightly on Islamic fundamentalism. Um, that has changed and when you talk to AZO today, you know, their list of people that they're most concerned about, usually about half of the people on that list now are from a proliferation of ideologies including Um, Nazism, you know, white nationalist, fascist ideologies, uh, people who are drawing from, you know, what they call a salad bar of, of radicalism, where there's a kind of whole bunch of different conspiracy theories being put together in various ways. So that's one of the issues. Um, we've got a number of other big things being reshaped in that space, though, as well. There is a very large number of minors in the, in the caseload at the moment, which is hugely concerning. We're talking about, children who are 12, 13, 14, who are, um, you know, looking on the internet, who are, you know, learning about um, radical ideologies and also the techniques, and this is of great concern, should be of great concern to all Australians. Something else that we're seeing is, um, if you go back to the kind of 2013, 14, 15, um, the, the way in which terrorism was presenting was You know, big, expensive, maximum fatality, long term planned events. Um, and what they, um, what the experts explain now is that there is a short flash to bang. So basically, someone will, um, Become radicalized and then move from a willingness to commit violence to committing violence in a terrifyingly short period of time. And this obviously creates huge issues in public safety because how do we find that person and intervene when there's just, just not much time to do it? Um, and the final, um, thing I just want to mention is the, the lower technology attacks. So Rory, you would have tracked the conversation about how ISIS kind of reshaped the terror, terrorist formula. Um, to, you know, people going from, um, you know, people doing these kind of elaborately planned terrorist attacks to someone picking up a knife and stabbing someone in the street that can, you know, very difficult to detect. So, this is this is a very different type of problem to the one that we saw around 2012, 2013, 2014 or, or the years preceding that. And I think the the big um, question for the Australian government now is, is the apparatus that we built for that earlier problem fit for purpose for what's happening now? And one of the things we absolutely know is that there's many more potential people that we could see potentially committing terrorist acts, and they're harder to track and find. So, how do we think about reshaping the way that we deal with this problem to make sure that we're adapting to those circumstances?
0: Uh, Minister, thanks for sharing so many of those very direct insights into the, I guess, the the great challenges uh, that you and the government and the Home Affairs portfolio have in protecting the national interest, our values and identity uh, now and into the future. Thanks for joining us on this podcast with the National Security College and we, we look forward to engaging with you again.
2: It's been great to chat, Roy. really appreciate your time.